<laughs> Can we have the word cougar be in the promo of the next show? No. Somehow. It doesn't have to be the whole phrase, just the word cougar. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have A.J. O'Neill. Yo, 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 it's SolderJS coming at you live from Provo, where... And that's another cougar first down. There's new fire in the building. <laughs> Is that it? I was hoping for a cat meow. Oh, they do, they often do. Sorry, so here's the thing. It's, it's a college town, and the, the college, like, we could literally hear it on a good night or a bad night, depending on how you consider it, when the, when, when they're playing home team and they've got the big speakers and it's row, 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 another cougar first down. I don't even I don't even know what that means, but I did see a game once. Nice. I need to go check and see when the season <laughs> starts because it's soonish. Yeah, how close to the stadium do you live, AJ? I never actually asked. I don't want to talk about it. It's a little too close for <laughs> convert. <laughs> awesome. We also have Joe Eames. Meow. That's my whole intro. <laughs> Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Rawr. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. So this week we have a special guest, and that's Evan Weaver. Evan, do you want to say hi and introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Evan Weaver. Thanks for having me. I'm in Boston. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Fauna, the distributed serverless database. Awesome. Have you thought about building iOS apps? We have a podcast that talks about the iOS development community, Swift, and all of the things that are involved in that. You can go find it at ifreakshow.com. That's I-P-H-R-E-A-K-S show.com. And uh, yeah, we had you on today to talk about GraphQL and, and some of the things that you're doing on GraphQL with Fauna. So yeah, let's, let's just uh, dive right in real quick. Do you want to kind of give us the elevator pitch for Fauna and that way we can kind of move from there? Yeah, Fauna is a serverless database. And what that means is it's not, it's not a database you run like in AWS Lambda. It's a database as a service built for building serverless apps. So in particular, you know, we've done a lot of work to, to integrate well with the Jamstack community and really deliver a database product for operational data, mission-critical data, as a ubiquitous global public API so that you can build an entire end-to-end serverless application in the open API-driven ecosystem without having to do any DevOps at all, without having to worry about machines or think about a container or really do anything to build your application locally and deploy it globally. That makes sense. And I think last time I looked, it was free to use up to a certain point. It is free to use. We have a, we have a, a metered billing model and prepaid plans and that kind of thing. I gotcha. So if you're building something relatively simple and small, you can get away with with a free plan. And then if you're going to kind of scale up from there, then you start paying, you know, based on traffic and how much, how many writes and data and things like that you're sending in, right? Yeah, reads, writes, bandwidth, basically. Yeah, you can run your entire development workflow completely for free. And you can do it completely locally or with serverless cloud. Nice. I, th- I think the, the thing that appealed to me, because I was looking at Fauna and you know we, we kind of pulled things together and invited you on the show, was just that a lot of people are looking at... Uh, I'm, I'm going to keep hitting GraphQL because that's kind of uh, the native query language for this, is that a lot of people are looking at GraphQL and then they go look at the options to set it up and it's like, oh, well, I've got to set up all these resolvers in my backend app and jump through all these hoops to make it work. 
or I can go find uh, you know some layer that sits on top of my database and then I've got to do all the operations to set it up. And I'm like, why not just go sign up for something like Fauna and then you can just start throwing GraphQL at it, right? I'm sure there's some setup involved, but it's not it's not like these other systems. I mean, there's really there's really no setup because fundamentally it's not a provisioned database. You know, the, we we operate Fauna multi-tenant serverless cloud, and it's globally distributed. So wherever your app and your clients, in particular your users, are located, they'll talk to the nearest Fauna nodes, and your workloads will scale dynamically, completely internal to Fauna, and completely without your involvement. And I, I agree with you. From my perspective, you know, the the serverless stack has a number of components. Like at the top, you know, you have hosting, you have like Netlify, Zite, some of the CDNs, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Then you have a compute tier under that, and there's like AWS Lambda and Flyo and some other systems which offer you a serverless compute experience. Then there's a middleware tier that lets you stitch together existing data sets like Hashira and Prisma, Apollo, GraphQL. But under that, you know, until we, in particular, until we built GraphQL, launched the serverless product and integrated into this world, there was really nothing that gave you that same serverless experience at the bottom of the stack in the, in the data space. You had to go back to a managed, you know, provisioned Postgres, Heroku, MySQL, something that made you think about where your machine lives, how big it is, how much capacity you have, what's the security model, and do all this ops. And, and fundamentally to me, the, the premise of the serverless revolution is getting rid of DevOps. You know, focus on building your product and abstract away everything else through public global APIs. Yeah, that makes sense. So what goes into building a distributed GraphQL setup like this? So we, we've been around for a little while. I started at Twitter in 2008, and I was employee 15 there. And I ended up running the, the back-end team, what we called the infrastructure team that built all the back-end distributed storage for Twitter.com. And at the time, you know, we were frustrated that we couldn't get data systems off the shelf that would let us target Twitter's global user base. And there were a number of reasons for that. And this was like you know, 2008, 2009. It was early in the NoSQL era. And people were talking a big talk about how you know, to, to scale, basically, you have to give up everything good about what a database can do. Like, you don't get relations anymore. You don't get transactions. You don't get unique constraints. You don't even get indexes. Just to normalize everything, you know. And it was kind of pre-cloud, too. So you were still talking about a, a physical data center. And I was at Twitter for four years and ultimately left with some of my teammates to found this company to explore the database space and figure out, you know, how can we build a general purpose platform that actually delivers on on this dream of not having to worry about the data tier? Because even at Twitter, you know, the systems we built ultimately ended up being point solutions for the different query patterns. Hold on. It wasn't, go go ahead, go ahead. Solutions for the different query patterns. We built a lot of sharding services that abstracted over query shapes and replication for existing local storage engines like InnoDB, Redis, Memcache, that kind of thing. And they, they solved the scalability and efficiency problems and they solved them very well, but they didn't solve the flexibility problem. They didn't solve the problem of building a new product and knowing that you could trust that if you launched it and it was a hit, that it would scale and that you wouldn't incur this tremendous, you know, operational burden 
and development burden to try to rewrite it for scale. Because, you know, Twitter came out of like the, you know, the, the Rails days and kind of this hypothesis that, you know, you know Rail, Rails was another kind of attitude uh, or like example of this worse is better attitude where it's like, well, it doesn't really matter if it's slow because if you're that successful, you can fix it. Well, that's not true anymore because growth curves for products are so fast it's not it's not reasonable to expect to be able to catch up and re-architect you know every six months along your journey as as you scale a product it's very expensive but also investing up front in security correctness global scalability and that kind of thing is also very expensive even if you're provisioning managed cloud services so the economics are broken from our we're broken from our perspective in terms of this this aspect of the application development life cycle and everything else you can do for free and scale basically for free transparently except for data. Okay, so you said a couple of interesting things in there I'd like to dig into that fascinate me. First off, I want to see if I can summarize correctly what you're saying. You're basically saying that you were able to make Twitter's scalability issues reasonable, but in doing so, you architected a solution that worked only for Twitter, exactly for Twitter. And so that you, you know, is what you were saying with the flexibility, right? If you change something about it or tried something new, then the scalability is back out the window and you have to kind of almost start from scratch. Is that yeah, it came in a direct trade-off with, with productivity and, and development flexibility, like the ability to experiment and iterate on what the mm -hmm. product is. And that was visible in Twitter's you know, external speed of product iteration. You know, it's better than not scaling the site. Like, and we, we did a good job, to be clear. But right. we were frustrated that we couldn't do it in general, and we had to do it specifically. The other thing that you talked about was the economics of, of scaling, right? So the, the, the Rails paradigm of it doesn't matter if you're slow because you can fix it as you grow. And, you know, when we look at what we're talking about here, what you, you're probably talking very much from the standpoint of this company that you're creating, Fauna, trying to solve these problems. But there's also a lot of people who are going to be listening to this who are working at some little tiny shop. They're, they're maybe just using a, a standalone SQL backend and they're thinking about uh, using some kind of serverless framework or it's, at least it's on their radar. They're looking at it. So for them, and, and or I identify that very much with this idea of I'm sitting at a company, I'm working on something, and there's so few resources around that scalability becomes one of these things that the man, the owner of the company says, hey, we got to be scalable because we're going to be bigger than Twitter, right? And everybody in the room kind of chuckles under their, their, their brain because, yeah, 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 sure, we're going to be bigger than Twitter. We're just happy to have, have jobs. And meanwhile, you don't give us enough resources to even build the features that you want, let alone worry about scalability, all this sort of stuff, right? And so I, I think that Oftentimes, there's this idea that everybody thinks they're going to be bigger than, than Twitter. And so they do these mouth movements about scalability. And then the companies that spend too much time on scalability end up not putting enough money and time and resources into their feature set, right? And so they're missing out on growing the actual core business. They're like, hey, we could have scaled to you know 50 million users, but we didn't put any features together, so we went out of business. And I think as a developer, a lot of developers get engaged in that conversation of, my gosh, why are you worried so much about scalability and fighting even with other developers? Like, this won't scale when we hit, you know, when we go to 50 million users. And they're saying, we're not going to get to 50 million users. We're trying to get to tomorrow. And so Fauna is trying to like solve that problem of you can be scalable without having to spend a bunch of time 
worrying about scalability? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a common, you know, point of confusion. Scalability is about more than capacity. Like your development stack needs to scale up, but it also needs to scale down. That means you need to be able to, you know, with minimal overhead, and in the case of, you know, phone and the serverless stack, literally none, start developing a new product and focus on that product iteration and incrementally scale it up over time. Like when the rest of the stack is free, and this like in particular applies to, you know, new developers or people starting side projects, like even spending a hundred or a thousand dollars a month for a Postgres cluster is too much. Like they're just not going to do it. And there's an economic cost to these products that don't get built because these components can't scale far enough down to be usable in kind of the free end-to-end development model that we used to have in particular with LAMP, where you ran everything locally and then you basically cut and paste it to a VPS for $10 a month when you are ready to deploy. People don't do that anymore. They sign up for AWS like, oh, I need to like provision security groups and load balancers and like three or nor- Aurora nodes in different regions and all this stuff, which incurs both the economic cost, but also a cost in time that degrades their ability to iterate on the product. And at the same time, applications increasingly have to scale out, not to more capacity and more nodes, but to more physical locations. Because if you're deploying embedded applications in the browser or on mobile, you don't control where your query patterns are coming from, your users do. If they have a bad experience because they have to talk to US East 1 in Virginia for everything, it's going to limit your ability to, to build your business and develop your product. So Fauna is, is, is solving scalability in, in aggregate. Like you can get more capacity in the cloud with like big machines, but that's not fundamentally the problem. It's part of the problem, but it's not the whole problem. But one of the things that you said about scaling down, I'm not sure that I really get what you mean by that, by scaling down. So this, this applies in particular to, to state. Like if you take a managed database, you have to provision some level of capacity and you have to pay for that capacity, whether you use it or not. And that capacity has to be enough to absorb whatever you expect your peak workload to be. And the typical database workload is, you know, very small, like a low number of, a low amount of constant throughput from the customer facing application. You know, it, it's broadly, you know, follows diurnal patterns, moves around the world, goes up and down a little bit, but it's pretty low. But then there are various spikes, you know, there's the monthly analytics jobs, there's maintenance, there's all kinds of stuff, which ends up pushing up the vertical capacity you have to provision and pay for just to run this application. And you have to do that per product and sometimes even per workload within the product. Like, oh, I'll go get like a read replica because it's unsafe to do anything intensive against my production-facing, you know, customer-facing data. And you end up, when the whole rest of the stack, especially in the serverless world, is dynamic and scales on demand with usage, state doesn't do it. So you end up paying this high fixed cost for these databases, but it's still it still might not be enough. You know, you still end up trying to optimize your query pattern to fit under, you know, whatever threshold you've provisioned. You have to make decisions ahead of time about deploying more capacity ahead of some event and then scaling it back down. These systems, you know, especially the legacy managed databases. You're kind of like talking about the fact that is this basically paying for the maximum throughput, but all the time? Is that essentially what you're getting at? Yeah, I mean, what is, I mean... 
you know, the, the JavaScript community in particular in GraphQL and Jamstack, we're all really invested in the serverless experience. And what does that mean to you as a developer? It means you don't have to think about provisioning, location, capacity. The system responds to the, to the work that's presented to it rather than the other way around. And traditional managed databases just don't do that. They're highly antagonistic to that pattern. So, sorry, I know AJ, you want to talk, but I just want to. I just want. I want to make sure that what I understand, and hopefully the listeners understand here, what you're talking about is that the servers and the workload that the servers typically give us, like the the processing workload, it seems that seems to be in a place where we're in a lot better place, right? Like that can scale up and down, but the databases are not in the same place. Is that what you're? Is that your point? Yeah. I mean, it's easier. It's fundamentally easier the less state you have to deal with, especially, you know, whether that state is persistent versus transient and, you know, canonical versus derived. So, you know, hosting assets, not that big a deal. You know, running stateless compute, there's, you know, cold start problems and some ephemeral state in memory, but fundamentally, it's pretty easy to make those fully dynamic experiences. Can you go As back you get closer and closer to data, you know, there's data gravity limits your ability to be flexible and requires, from our perspective, a complete re-architecture of what a database is to meet these demands. Can you define those four terms, the transient versus persistent, canonical versus derived? Yeah, so um, transient data, you know, is, is basically cached data. You know, something in memory, like in a Lambda or in the browser for a particular user session. Like if you lose it, it doesn't matter because it it can be reconstituted from other sources. But persistent data, you know, is is really, you know, the heartbeat of any product or any business. It's it's user-generated content, identity, you know, transactions, everything that cannot be lost and and rebuilt. It's the source of, of rebuilding for everything else. And then canonical versus uh, what did you call it? Derived. 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 Yeah, that's um, it's a different expression of the same thing. Like transient is how long your data lasts for. So transient has some time limit in which it's useful, and then it's discarded. Persistent lasts forever. Canonical versus derived is who owns, you know, the source of truth for that long-lived data. Like an analytics system traditionally is a derived system. It copies the data out of an operational database, does a bunch of stuff with it, and if you screw it up, need more or less capacity, you can junk it and start over. But you know, your, your operational data is, is persistent, canonical data that cannot be lost without damaging the product and the business. Gotcha. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat 
at Century.io. All right, AJ, I'm done. All right, so first of all, I am the traditionalist contrarian. That's my position on the show. So <laughs> it, it is. Please go check out me and AJ chatting on Twitter for evidence. Or, or, uh, uh, more on that later, maybe. Um, so, well, were you having a 10x conversation? Oh, Chuck, a one tenth. Distracting. You're distracting. Okay. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead, anyway. AJ. <laughs> so, so a couple of things. One, I work at a company, and I think most companies aren't doing social apps. So, I, I don't. I, I think this that is a little bit of a fallacy that you're going to have to scale to a million users because I, I think could be wrong. But there's just so much in the social space that's already there. It's already it's already taken. And most people just aren't working on social apps. They're working on probably B2B in niche markets. Well, I'm working on the next Twitter, but maybe not. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, like Joe, of course. Joe's got the <laughs> reputation for it. He's got the skills. Joe's going to be successful, but most most everybody else now. Amy and I are starting the next Twitter app. The Twitter LinkedIn blend. It's called Cougaritter. Oh, God, no. <laughs> oh, man, I had the sound clip queued up, but I had to reboot the other computer system update. Dang it. Okay. But on topic here, so one thing that's really frustrating to me, I, I, I think we've got this inverse of people that are, that are very junior and they're being given extremely complex and difficult to debug tools that right. are really fragile. So what, I, what I'm seeing is like where I work, one of the services we rely on goes down almost every day off Zero, GitHub, CircleCI, Akiris, like basically everything that we have in our stack goes down at least once a month if not once a week. And these are like these huge scalable vendors, but it's disruptive to our workflow as, as developers, you know, and then Amazon goes down usually once a year. And when it goes down, it goes down for like the whole day. It's not just like 10 minutes, you know? So all of these services in my perspective are not super reliable. They're really complicated, really hard to debug. And uh, people don't know how to do basic things, right? Like you're saying, well, you know, we're going to take away the database. Well, there goes my intellectual property because now my customer data is in somebody else's database entirely. And how do I dev local when you have a network hiccup because you're using AWS and the AWS entire East region went down for 12 hours today? Like, I know that that's, it doesn't, it, you know, it's like once a year, but still like, I- No, no, you're right. It, it, it does happen. Well, I was going to add, I feel like the biggest thing I see is that, we and it's a nature of like having diverse teams with like varying skill sets but new people don't understand why like they they don't understand why we're using something and i feel like that's really important i don't understand why we're using something (laughs) in terms of the impact on the development experience or the production you know the the so i said a couple of things there The, the two things i want to hone in on are one is like I don't buy into serverless because the pipeline seems so fragile. It's it's not a single point of failure. It's a hundred services, each with a single point of failure that any one of them goes down, your app is screwed that day or that hour. I mean, usually the things get resolved within an hour or two. The other thing is how do you have a good local experience with serverless? How do you, how do people be productive without having to be constantly connected online. How can I take a vacation and do, well, I don't really vacation. Maybe most people actually drop work and they vacation, but I like vacation and then like to work still. But you know, how am I going to get work done when I'm on a crappy internet connection? I want to dev local, you know? 
Like, how am I going to do that with something like this? And the data is important. Like, this is the most critical piece. That circle goes down, whatever, I can still develop, right? But if, if for some reason I don't have immediate access to the database itself, and it's, I don't know how proprietary this is, uh, you know, if it's just like a PostGraph file service or if it's, you know, something very highly specific, but like, how do I, how do I dev if I need to dev local? Yes, I agree with you. And, and to me, like, I kind of feel like we're back to the 90s. Like, we have a proprietary stack equivalent to the Windows development stack, which is AWS and AWS serverless. If you use all their tools within their own world, it's pretty okay you're completely dependent on them and you're completely dependent on, you know, kind of what products and vendors are allowed into that ecosystem or not. On the other hand, we have the equivalent of LAMP and the open source movement, which ultimately became more dominant and became dominant for this reason. It's, it's open. And to me, that's Jamstack. And it, it's a bunch of providers who still are fundamentally offering APIs rather than downloadable things you have to operate and install and generally like do the DevOps upon, which is what we're trying to get rid of here. But they integrate through, you know, HTTP, they have substitutes in the market, there's no barriers to entry for other vendors. And by and large, and I think this is critical to the health and the long-term growth of the ecosystem, they all offer a local development experience. And the better integrated and easier to use that experience is, the more you avoid this particular problem. And to that effect, you know, Fauna, unlike, for example, DynamoDB, Fauna offers a download, which you can use locally through Docker or otherwise, which is an actual version of the running global service and has all the exact same capabilities except for the distribution so that you can, you can integrate it into your, your build chain, your local environment, even your other product to create this like slipstreamed dev experience that your customers can use without a service dependency. Because the issue in particular for Fauna, the issue is less, you know, a, a loss of a production data center. Fauna is resilient to that, which we can talk about as well. It's really, you know, local connectivity, the local experience, being able to integrate it into your existing tool chain and environment in a completely local way. So you don't have an artificial dependency on, on the cloud, so to speak, just for doing your, your basic, you know, day-to-day development workflow. Okay, so you, you hit a sweet spot for me. Like, I love what you said there, because that's, that's really what I want. Like, I want convenience when I don't care. And when I do care, I want the ability to run locally. Like, you telling me that I can download an instance of Fauna and have it work without having to use Docker, that I could use Docker if I wanted to complicate things, but I could just run it, get a port open and connect to it. That makes me happy. That makes it sound like this is something I could put the AJ contrarian traditionalist stamp of approval on. (laughs) And that's a hard stamp to get. Well, actually, it's easy, just most. Yeah, it's super easy. Don't use TypeScript. AJ will approve it. (laughs) So my question is more, and this is probably like a hard question to answer. And I don't know, feel free to not if you don't want to, but like pulling in a dependency like this is a pretty big deal. And with it not being backed by like one of the big tech giants, I always get nervous. Like you see what happened with RethinkDB and and that sort of thing. So I feel like listeners may have that concern if you want to like talk to that at all. Yeah, I mean, 
I, th- I think that's a, a broad concern in the open serverless stack in that, you know, these companies, Fauna not excluded, are, are funded by VCs. And, you know, they don't have like the billion dollars that Google dumped into Google Spanner, for example. On the other hand... Especially you know, not in my background and where I worked before. Like, I think in general, like the JavaScript community is concerned about this right now. Yeah, and I think, you know, the more you rely on a service provider who's offering an API, the more you have to trust the longevity of that provider. At the same time, you know, it's, it's not a dissimilar dynamic to what happened with open source. You know, the, the productivity benefits and in particular, like the ability to install it for free, run it locally, you know, without having to talk to salespeople on the phone and go to steak dinners and all that, all that kind of stuff, which, you know, was ultimately not intrinsic to your development experience, lo and behold was worth it to take the risk in using a new product in a new ecosystem. And, you know, we, we are well-funded. Fawn has raised $30 million to date, similar to some of the other leading providers in, in, in the space. So I think it comes down to, you know, how motivated are you to be on the bleeding edge and, and take any kind of risk at all? And that, that applies to large providers too, because, you know, the, these, these large providers, they shut down products as well. And I, I think it's kind of a false hope to expect that, you know, if you use, for example, Aurora Postgres, you can trivially migrate to some other Postgres and some other provider if it no longer meets your needs. But at the, but at the same time, you know, we are taking pains to fit into the OpenStack in an open way, in particular with GraphQL, and offer APIs um, beyond Fauna's native FQL API, which are standard so that substitutes exist either through GraphQL middleware or ultimately additional GraphQL native databases. And you know, right now, to be clear, Fauna offers FQL, which is our own functional relational query language. That's kind of like the intermediate representation on which any other query language can, build, can be built. We have native GraphQL also available in the cloud and on-prem, or I mean, in the cloud and locally. And... We're also working on SQL and eventually other standard interfaces to eliminate some of the dependency that you speak of. Yeah, for me, one of the things with as far as eliminating the risk is just migratability, right? So if this turns out not to quite fit my needs and I find something else, and you know, maybe it is on AWS or maybe there's another service, you know, how easy is it for me to pull my data out? And is it in a format that I can then take and, you know, drop in something else? Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, and right now, I think anywhere in the Jamstack ecosystem, it's not that easy, Fauna not excluded. That's why we need more providers with more standard APIs and connectors between them. And it's, it's different from like your managed database world where you might run a tool locally, like cloud connectors to import from different systems will help solve this problem without incurring a DevOps burden again. And that's really what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to avoid pushing you back into DevOps town where you have to manually administrate a server to accomplish some basic part of the, the job, including making the data portable. Which isn't that hard, by the way. It, it takes about 10 minutes to set up Postgres and costs five bucks a month, not a thousand. I just want to put that out there. Well, you already know how to do it. So if you're, if you're entering this ecosystem in particular as a new dev, and that's the only point at which you have to provision some kind of VM or container and install and manage something, 
Whoa, whoa, you're using big words. I click the easy <laughs> button. I, I go, you, you go into DigitalOcean, you click Postgres, you click buy, right? Or you, if you want to set it up yourself and save a, a couple dollars, you click normal VPS, you Google install Postgres, and there's like 10 lines you copy and paste, done. And then, so how do you expose it as a public API to your serverless app? I don't worry about serverless apps. I don't want to introduce that complexity into my apps. So what, what was the first database that you ever used? It was MySQL. Why did you use it? Uh, stupid reason, because everybody else was using it. Wasn't really a great database. Wouldn't, wouldn't use it for anything now, but it was what other people that didn't know what they were doing told me I should use. So did, did everyone use it because it was bad? Or did they use it because it was integrated into their, their development stack. I mean, back then, it was, it was just prolific. Like, everybody, if you Googled, how do I learn to program, PHP always came up. And not enough PHP trolls were around at the time to say, hey, don't even join this forum. It's a bad idea. So we'd, we'd get on these PHP forums, and it was a lot of the blind leaving the blind, and we just talk back and forth, and we get something running, and we didn't know that it was bad, and I guess that's okay. And so we got something running. But we just we just copied and pasted scripts from forums. That's how we did it back in the day. It was terrible. It was absolutely wretched. But it worked. Well, I think that's the point, right, is that it worked, and then you got better, and you could make better decisions, and, and things move along. And yeah, it's it's not the ideal way to do things. But if you're learning, it's not a terrible way to go about it. I agree. I agree. It is absolutely true. Like no, no matter what you do, if you get it going and you get started and you get any traction, it doesn't matter what you do. If you get to that point, you can do it the worst way possible. If you get to the point where you have the problem that needs to be solved of, I'm doing something that people want. I need to figure out how to take money and serve them. I mean, I think it wasn't the worst way though. You were optimizing for your own productivity and you picked up the integrated stack that gave you what you needed to, to accomplish that goal. Yeah, I, I wish, like it would have been cool if, it, this is one of the things with beginner resources, they're normally terrible. It would be cool if there was some benevolent expert that wrote beginner resources to help people get started that became popular. And that's the hard thing is like all the resources that are the most popular are usually the ones that are, I, I don't know. I don't know how it comes about, but like it's hard to be a beginner because it's, like if the information on how to do it quote the right way were available, of course I would have preferred that. But like, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what's the right way, what's the wrong way. You just get something working and that's good enough. I'm sure you were super hopped up on like Matt's script, script archive at the time and that kind of thing. Like <laughs> it, like the, the right way, like the experts would have told you to buy Oracle, which just wasn't an option. Like you had a better way and that ecosystem matured and eventually, you know, with Oracle and what have you, like Postgres and Rails kind of became LAMP 2.0 and PHP and MySQL fell by the wayside. But like fundamentally, you know, it was the best choice at the time because it, it, it offered the most productivity. And that's where, and to be clear, Fauna is not a bad database. It's a very good database. But the serverless ecosystem and Jamstack in particular and even AWS serverless is in the same place where there's a, transformer, a transformative productivity benefit but the tools are immature. But the productivity benefit is worth it 
because long term they will mature and they will become good. And you will have a, you know, the, the people adopting it now will benefit over the lifetime of their careers, including us, from the change in the development workflow. So unfortunately, I have to skip out. But one thought I'll leave lingering that maybe can be addressed is I noticed with some of the tools, they're very consistent, but they're auto-generated, like uh, PostGraphile. And um, there's another one that's similar to that, but I can't remember the name off the top of my head. But then there's other tools that give you more flexibility, but you can also kind of shoot yourself in the foot because you choose bad structures that are hard to query and whatnot. And I'm, I'm curious as to which way Fauna leans towards or, or pushes users towards, not that one is necessarily better than the other, but just kind of curious about that. However, I won't be around to hear the answer. So Fauna essentially compiles GraphQL to the, the FQL intermediate representation. And that's transparent to you, the end user. But Fauna offers a more general language than, than SQL, for example. It includes security capabilities and temporal capabilities, the ability to ma- manipulate time. It includes nested objects and, and all kinds of stuff, as well as very powerful views that let us have a straighter, you know, a straight path without impotence mismatches between GraphQL as expressed and what the Fauna query engine is doing. And to specifically answer your question, we believe that eliminates this risk because we, we want you to be able to treat it as a native GraphQL database that runs GraphQL the best way. Putting aside like schema stitching and the other like big value of GraphQL as an integration point, like if you just want to store GraphQL data and not think about it, that's what Fauna is for. And it, it doesn't make you make these decisions that rely on this body of knowledge, which which is, you know, essentially obsolete in this new world, you know, relational modeling operations, choosing where your nodes live and what kind of consistency model they offer you, replication, all this stuff, which is ancillary to storing some GraphQL data in a global way. So I kind of want to change directions a little bit. So I've been playing a lot with Jamstack lately and I'm really enjoying, you know, kind of the ease with which I can do a lot of the deployment. I don't have to fiddle with, you know, WordPress plugins or, you know, go build complicated features with Rails or Express. You know, I I can just go hit some server on the back or service, sorry, not server. I can hit some service and and do a lot of what I need to do, you know. So whether it's sort of the serverless functions that you get out of AWS Lambda or Azure Functions, or whether it's, you know, something else where it's okay, you know, go touch this online database or things like that. I'm really, really digging it. So how would I get started with something like Fauna DB if I thought, okay, you know, this, I want to add this uh, feature. I'm going to use Vue.js or, or React or Angular and, you know, hook it up to this GraphQL backend. How do I get that going? So you... And in particular, you know, Netlify has a bunch of examples to this effect, and, and Fauna is included as an add-on in Netlify Dev. Any GraphQL tool you already use that expects a GraphQL API can be pointed at Fauna and like GraphQL Playground, for example. But in terms of Fauna itself, all you have to do is go to our site, click the the, the GitHub login button, and you get dumped into a web shell where you can integrate, you can interact with GraphQL or FQL 
against your fauna database without any additional steps. So in your stack, depending on whether you want GraphQL specifically or not, like if you want GraphQL, you can use all your existing GraphQL drivers, just point it to the fauna endpoint. If you want FQL, you can grab our JavaScript driver, which offers kind of power user mode, full access to, to fauna's capabilities, but without the convenience of the native GraphQL interface. So essentially I can set it up, you know, maybe use the Netlify add-on, maybe not. And then just use something like Apollo on the front end and it just works. Yeah. What's the authentication story there? Because I, I don't really want other people writing to my database. So Fauna, Fauna offers native authentication via GraphQL and via FQL. Or you can integrate a third-party auth service with typically like a, a compute service. Because mm-hmm. in, in, in Jamstack, I think my experience has been that serverless compute is more like a trusted enclave than a place where you try to run all your business logic. Like if you can't run the logic in the browser, you'll put it into a compute tier. And that's the obvious place where you would integrate phone a security model with whatever identity and authentication you already use. And you can do things like get a token from some other service, link it to a FONA identity and issue a FONA access key, which closes over that scope and the role-based access control privileges you've defined in your data model through GraphQL or elsewise to limit that direct access to the public database API to, to what you need. And this is a big difference from like a RDBMS, like a SQL system in particular, because the only way you can secure a SQL system at the user level is to use a piece of middleware, which you have to operate separately. In Fauna, that's not the case. Makes sense. So are there companies out there using Fauna for their applications that we might have heard about or would make a good example of what you can actually get done with this? Yeah, there are. NVIDIA has been been a, a customer for some time now, in the, even from the beta days. And they use it to back the GeForce experience and like user identity around all the customer-facing NVIDIA products and services. Also, Nextdoor.com is a big user, uses it for some of their social, uh, their social graph capabilities um, and query patterns. And then there's also some other customers who are more especially were popular with people who are building SaaS applications because Fauna's tenancy model lets you provision a database context for every one of your own customers and keep it isolated and secure without incurring additional physical or administration costs at the database level. So um, ShiftX is an example of a SaaS application which is built on top of Fauna and uses that capability. Cool. Is there anything else we should know about Fauna that we haven't asked about? I mean, we haven't spent much time talking about kind of the, the, the technical innovations. And I think this speaks to, to Amy's question about like, how can we trust it? Because in the early days, you know, with NoSQL, like the, the story that was preached was that to build any scalable or distributed system, you had to give up, you know, correctness, flexibility, even resiliency to some degree and incur all this tremendous developer burden to, to deal with these less capable database systems. And that, that fundamentally turned out not to be true. And in particular, when Google Spanner came out, I think it became more generally accepted that it's possible to build a system which is just as 
flexible and transactional is correct as an RDBMS targeted for the cloud and for a distributed environment. But when we were starting out Fauna, we, we wanted to build for this global ubiquitous world for you know mobile and for browser. And we were taking a look at kind of the algorithmic choices you can make on a technical level as to how you could accomplish the flexibility that we were missing at Twitter with the point solutions we built there and get to something closer like Google Spanner. And historically in, in the industry, you know, there's basically been three generations of distributed transactional algorithm. The first was what's called Percolator, which essentially elects a single data center as the right data center. It's basically you know, primary follower scaled up to data center scale. And there's one node that has to issue timestamps to every query. The revision or the extension of that to improve, improve you know, the, the scalability, the latency, all that kind of thing. With Spanner itself, which replaces the percolator timestamp server with physical atomic clocks. But that doesn't translate to the public cloud. It doesn't translate to unreliable hardware where both the clocks aren't accessible and latency of the entire stack is uncontrolled. So we ended up choosing at Fauna, we ended up choosing an algorithm called Calvin, which inverts the model completely and eliminates any hardware dependency and lets us scale our Fauna serverless cloud globally while maintaining low latency and, and resiliency with, with complete transparency to the, the end user, the developer using the API. Vue.js is no longer the new kid on the block. It's a well-established framework that allows you to build web applications similar to React and Angular. We have a podcast featuring several people from the Vue community, including Chris Fritz, who's on the Vue core team, Ben Hong, who works for GitLab, and several other people that contribute on a regular basis to talk to us about Vue and all of the things going on in the Vue community and all of the things you can do with it. You can check it out at viewsonvue.com. That's views, V-I-E-W-S, on viewvue.com. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Now, I don't know if we prepped you on picks, Evan. Basically, we just shout out about stuff we like. So it can be tech stuff. It can be TV shows, books, movies, music, you know, some hobby that you have, anything like that. I think you'll get the picture. We're going to make Amy and Joe go first. Amy, do you have some picks for us? There is a band called Falling in Reverse that I really like. They have, I'm not advocating for doing drugs, but the song is called Drugs. And I really like it. The music video, I would encourage people to check out the music video for it. It's pretty good. But I will share a link to this artist in the show notes. And that's it for me. All right, Joe, where are your picks? You know, I'm really sad that AJ left because I was going to pick being a 10x programmer. But... (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, let's see. I'll pick a board game. There's this uh, board game that I really played a while ago that's really quite fun called Battle Stations. It's kind of like a sort of a mini role-playing game where you play people that are on a ship and they have to figure out they're getting boarded by aliens and you got to attack the aliens and fend off the aliens. And they just came out with an expansion through Kickstarter called Dirtside, which is like a board game that you play where you're fighting on the ground and in the same universe and the two can work together. It's really quite complex. And if you're looking for really, really, really deep, combat-oriented, sort of like Dungeons & Dragons, kind of light, just tactical combat type of a game, then Battle Station's a great game. Nice. Very cool. I am going to pick a couple of things here. So you were talking about a Battleship game, and I've played a game called Captain Sonar. And uh, everybody has a different job on the ship. 
and you have to communicate to each other in order to, uh, you know, to get things done because yeah, everybody has to do different parts of the job. And essentially what it is, is it's, you split into two teams and each team basically manning a submarine and you're trying to sink the other submarine. And so you've got different, uh, like you have the, the navigation. So if you get a, a blip on the radar or something like that, then, you know, then, then you can, uh, extrapolate where they are anyway, just stuff like that. So there's the captain, there's the, anyway, everybody has a different role to play basically in it. And, you know, there's the engineer. And so they run all the systems and I really enjoyed it. I'm not doing it justice at all. It's, it's way cooler than I'm making it sound. The other pick that I have is a system called Canny. So in the past, we've had recommendation engines for devchat.tv built on different systems. We used user voice for a while and they hiked their prices way up and they weren't giving me 100% what I wanted anyway. And so I left them and I kind of used a form on WordPress for a while and then it would use Zapier to push all the recommendations through the system and that, that kind of wasn't perfect either. And then we moved off of WordPress so then it really didn't work for us. And so now I'm, I'm looking at Canny and Canny is actually exactly what I wanted. So it allows you to upvote and downvote people's recommendations. You can also put in recommendations and it, allow, it allows you to embed it in, in a website. And that's what I wanted because I don't want to make people go off to, you know, blah, blah, blah.canny.io. And, you know, it, that, that's just, it's not what I want. What I want is for people to be able to go to like javascriptjabber.com slash recommend and then just, you know, suggest a topic or something. So that's what I've got. So if you go to JavaScript Jabber slash recommend, then you will end up at the right place and you can recommend topics and guests for us. I've put a bunch in there and uh, there you go. If you listen to the, any of the other shows, those are also uh, up. So you can go and, and recommend topics for the other shows as well. I actually put in topic recommendations for the shows that we don't produce anymore. And I guess if I get enough of those, I'll probably look at actually getting them going again. So anyway, those are my picks. Evan, do you have some things you want to shout out about? Yeah, sure. Uh, one, one thing I got into just recently, I never played the, the Forza series before. And I picked up Forza Horizons 4. And I've been playing it with my kids. And I really like it. It's really arcadey. The seasons changing are pretty cool. It's on Xbox and PC, I think. And it also has Lego mode which my kids were over the moon about. And my, my daughter, who is four, was amazed that the realistic-looking cars and, and Lego were together in the same world. And that, that basically blew her mind. So that's been a fun game that we've been playing off and on recently. That sounds like fun. The, kind of the same kind of thing my kids would enjoy. If people want to find you online, where do they go? So you can find me on Twitter at, at Evan, just E-V-A-N. Oh, wow. How'd you land that? Well, I, I worked there. Oh, right. <laughs> kind of like that, Jack, right? Uh, yeah. And uh, the same on GitHub. And then our website is fauna.com. F-A-U-N-A.com. Nice. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Evan. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up, folks, and we will be back next week. Peace. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.